You're listening to the Real Estate Runway Podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. All right, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Rafael Coyasso. He is a retail commercial broker, which is super interesting because we talk a lot about multifamily and unit-based product on this show. So concepts are similar on investing in commercial real estate, specifically the retail space, but there's just a lot of different nuances that we really don't talk about in the space of unit-based products. So I'm excited to have this well-accomplished author. He's written six books. I think he may have a new brand going before you build this that, you know, insert title here. But let's let's get in with Mr. Raphael here and let's just kind of hear how this is different from multifamily and how it might work for you. Here we go. All right, all right, all right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Runway Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton. We are powered by Quattro Capital as always. And I'm joined here today by my dear friend, Mr. Rafael Coyasso. Rafael is a commercial real estate agent, broker rather, who is specialized in retail real estate. Now, you know, we have a lot of unit-based discussions on this on this show. Really excited to have Rafael on here to kind of help us with some of the square footage-based commercial product and really kind of get into how those are looking today as investments, what's driving the market. And, you know, a little premonition here, he also has written a book and has a podcast. So if you want to learn more about this, we're going to get into that. Rafael, welcome to the show, brother. How are you today? Thanks, man. No, I'm excited to be here. You know, I followed along with what you guys have been doing for a while. So you guys are doing some phenomenal work in the space and I'm just phenomenal. I'm really grateful to be here to, to talk to you today. Hey, man, I appreciate that. And you know, what, what you don't know is I'm getting a common theme of, of having to reschedule episodes because the life of an operator is also very busy. And so thanks to Raphael for allowing me to do that and for still coming on the show after being pushed off two times. So welcome. Glad to have you here. <laughs> Hey, business comes first, as they say. So it's important to make sure you're servicing your clients the best of your ability. Exactly, my friend. Exactly. That is the Quattro way, after all. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Raphael. What got you into the commercial real estate space? You know, what journey brought you here and, and why did you choose retail? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I'll go back to the beginning just so you can have a little bit of context as to who I am. So I was actually born in Northeast Italy. My mom's Italian. My dad's Puerto Rican. He was in the Air Force and was stationed in Aviano Air Base, which is a Air base in, in, in Northeast Italy. And so I lived in Italy until I was about five years old, moved to Germany. I was there for two years at an army base and then ultimately moved to uh, Shape, which is Supreme Headquarters, Allied Powers Europe, NATO headquarters until I was 14, then moved to the United States where I went to high school in Southern Arizona. I went to Arizona State to study engineering, industrial engineering and minor in economics and then got into the software development role. So I was a software implementation consultant for a large enterprise that implemented software systems for government agencies across the country and abroad. So I worked in Washington, D.C. I've worked in uh, Puerto Rico. We helped implement their financial software system for the island. I was on that project. And then after Hurricane Maria hit, I was that, that project was put on hold temporarily. And I was moved to here to Louisville, Kentucky uh, to help with the financial software system of the city. And, you know, that turned into a more long term project because the project manager wanted to keep me around. And, you know, that's kind of what I did until I transitioned away from what I was doing before. I transitioned back in the mid 2019 and then got into the brokerage space. And I've just I haven't looked back since. Um, and the reason why I decided to go the retail route is kind of just by happenstance. It just so happened that the brokers that I ultimately joined, we do a lot of retail. Um, so, you know, I got to learn a lot of the nuances of retail. We still do a lot of other deals. Like we, I've done multifamily deals, I've done office deals, I've, you know, worked in the industrial space. So I've, I understand those types of projects as well. But just as of late, it's been a lot of retail, which is kind of where 
I've decided to kind of focus my efforts. Wow, that's incredible. So I have to kind of say here, we have a lot more similar background than I than I ever realized. So, you know, I also was in engineering path and highly technical. So that it, there must be something about real estate that attracts people like us out of our, you know, super nerdy jobs and into something where, good Lord, the problems we're solving are not near as complex as what we used to do, but the dollar signs are a lot better, right? Absolutely. And, and, and really the commercial real estate is one that, you know, I think a lot of, you know, our analytical minds are attracted to for the, the nuances that are, that come into play. And, you know, obviously, as you know, I mean, people focus on one property type typically because if you, you couldn't possibly know all the different nuances of all the different types of commercial property. I mean, I know some, you know, industrial guys that all they do is industrial and they, a lot of them focus either on logistics or manufacturing because there's nuances to each of those as well. So it's, you know, it's a, it is a very uh, complex market, but that's why I enjoy it. I think that's one of the reasons what that attracted me when it, when I looked at the real estate market and I thought whether residential or commercial, that, that, that's what really, you know, pulled me in one direction versus another. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And all in all, you know, not to digress too much from our initial conversation, but any business, whatever it is, whether you're selling hamburgers, whether you're, you know, leasing apartments or selling square footage in a warehouse, the key is knowing your customer, right? And, and I, I always challenge individuals who, there are some who are very good at, at putting who's in the right place to help them with owning multiple asset types, but it's really good to get really good at at least one core asset type and then try to maybe have tributaries around that core stream that supplement, you know, because it, you can't, you just, like you said, you just can't be an expert in multifamily residential and self-storage and commercial retail and commercial warehousing. There's, there's nuances to each and you will miss something, right? So anyway, just, Two cents from Chad's soapbox. We're stepping off the soapbox and back into the episode now. So, but before we leave this topic, I have to know, Raphael, what what was the emotion or the driver that that pulled you from what what sounds like an amazing career that you had built for yourself and into commercial real estate? Yeah, that, that's also a phenomenal question. So the role that I was in before was a, was a was a consulting role. So I, you know, periods of time where you work an absurd amount of hours, which is I wasn't opposed to because I love I love to work. I'm I, I deem myself somewhat of a workaholic, which is probably not a good thing. I've definitely tried to pull back a little bit on that front, but the work part wasn't the the issue. Is the traveling and consistent moving? You know, I was moving every other year. You know, it's very hard to build any semblance of a business. When you're picking up and moving, you know, every other year and your, your network starts to dissipate over time. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about the, the future and how I wanted to, you know, what I wanted to do with my life, you know, even before I actually transitioned, it was about two or three years in the making. And my mom is a residential agent in Arizona has done extremely well. And she encouraged me to get my license even when I was in college. And, you know, you don't necessarily <laughs> always listen to your parents, you know, uh, coming, coming around that time, I started having conversations with people and one was my mom and she said, why don't you look into, re in, into residential real estate to start off with? And so I looked into there and then ultimately I found commercial and I thought, you know, this is kind of a perfect uh, potential opportunity. I had a, I had a small business in, in, in college. It was a catering company. It was called Posticity. We made a lot of uh, different types of pastas for, we, we did a bunch of, uh, you know, sorority and fraternity events. We've done, you know, different corporate lunches and stuff. So, you know, I always deem myself somewhat entrepreneurial and you get to deal in the commercial space. You get to deal with business owners that want to establish the presence in a market. You get to deal with investors that love to, they want to, you know, find opportunities for them to build generational wealth. And so I thought, what better way to be able to do that than to dive in the commercial space? What enabled me to do it was, you know, bigger pockets was a big part of my transition. You know, I bought a fourplex and house hacked it. And then, you know, that's kind of what enabled me to survive like the first two years in commercial brokerage because it is a brutal business. And especially going into COVID the first year, I, I transitioned in mid 2019. And then, as we all know, the world shut down March 
of that following year. And so, you know, there was like two or three months there where no one was doing anything. I, I would talk to my clients. They'd be like, yeah, we're holding off. Uh, the world shut down. So there's really nothing we can do. So, you know, it was a difficult time, but, you know, we got, we got through it and now it's, uh, I'm better for it. Absolutely. And I, I'd venture to say it's those time, those trying times that make you better and, and make you innovate. Right. I mean, think about, for example, what the retail space did to survive COVID, you know, it's pretty incredible. So I get why people weren't selling or buying at the time though, this uncertainty. So that's pretty cool. So I, I enjoy knowing kind of what drove you into this. And so I think where we'll take it a little bit, if you're okay with it, my listeners really don't know the commercial space, much less the niche of retail. You know, we're we much, we talk a lot more about unit-based commercial stuff. So multi, mobile home parks, multifamily, build to rent, self-storage, <clears throat> you know, things you rent by the unit. But I would, I would lump this into square footage based, right? You're renting this by the square foot and specifically to retail tenants. So if you had to get on a stage and give me like the top three, four, five, 10, whatever you think is important, things that I should know as an investor, you know, when I'm trying to acquire a good retail investment property, what, what do you look for? And, and I, I think one of the reasons I think you're so credible on this is you were an investor first, right? You have house hacked, you have, you know, you kind of, you have that mindset as well. And so, you know, how would we start that conversation? Yeah. That's a great question. And, and, and you're right. And, and I will say I own a multifamily property. I personally, you know, luckily I'm at a brokerage where we do a whole lot of retail and my broker owns shopping centers and other things like that. So I've learned through that example and having been involved with several retail transactions, I feel like, again, it's very hard to replicate experience. And so, you know, as far as the retail opportunities are concerned, the ones that I typically work with, with investors that are looking for long-term holds, they're multi-tenant, you know, retail centers located in, in high, along high traffic roadways, solid visibility and accessibility. So, you know, the three things that I typically in, encourage people to look for is visibility, accessibility, and traffic counts or foot traffic. So those are the three things that, you know, you typically look for, and that's pertaining to the location itself. So, you know, if it's a, if it's a strip center and there's 45,000 cars that go down in a day, that's very valuable for retail tenants because the foot traffic that they run, that come into this, the, the, the building can translate into sales. And, you know, what you can charge in rent is a function of how much sales you can achieve at a particular space. And so, you know, if you do have solid traffic counts, the demographics are also very important. So, you know, if you're in a middle income area, for example, then you probably wouldn't want to put like a, you know, a high end luxury, you know, store in there. It just wouldn't survive as, as well as it should. Right. So the tenant mix is also important. So, you know, that's, that's, those are the things that I would look for visibility, accessibility, traffic counts. You'd want to look at tenant mix. And then the tenants themselves, you need to get into the leases and really look to see, you know, what the credibility of the particular tenant is, because there's, there may be a, a tenant that is a, you know, a hundred, you know, location franchisee and their, their, their balance sheets probably rock solid. And then there could be mom and pops that maybe not are not as rock solid. But again, so there, there's a lot of nuances, but I would say those are just the high level things to look out for when you're looking at some of these opportunities. So if we're talking about the difference in a stabilized retail center and a what I would call a value add retail center to use multifamily and unit based terms, what do you as a broker start to look for related to, you know, what would be a value add project or what would be a stabilized project? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No. So a stabilized project, you would typically see, you know, really strong tenant base. You know, you're looking at nationals. You may be looking at multi-location franchisees in place. Um, you know, the rents are going to be closer to market. And so that you'd have to look at analysis to see whether or not it is closer to market. There may be, you know, other things like out parcels that, that 
also have right solid tenants and you know they may not belong to you but they, they could be drivers as far as bringing in traffic for other tenants within the center so those are those could potentially be some a stabilized asset as far as value add is concerned i think one of the best ways to add value to, to a project is to look at the leases you know unlike you know multifamily real estate where the leases are pretty cookie cutter you know there's only so much you can put into a lease based on you know just regulations for residential living uh, with commercial real estate, it runs the gamut. I mean, you know, there's triple net leases, there's, you know, modified gross leases, there's gross leases, all these different types of leases. And, and, and we can get into the nuances of each. But, you know, typically when you see yourself in a retail center, you're either in a triple net environment, meaning that you, you pay your pro out a share of taxes, insurance and general maintenance, or you're in a percentage lease environment sometimes, which is after you, you essentially operate in a triple net environment. But after a certain breakpoint, so if you achieve a million dollars in sales above that certain amount of whatever the breakpoint is, you would pay an additional rent to the landlord based on their ability to help you generate sales through the beautification of the center or whatever else. And so those are typically the two types of leases that you see in these environments. And a lot of times, you know, unsophisticated landlords may be suppressing the value of the, the retail opportunity because they just offer releases that aren't very attractive, very solid. You know, they could be gross leases, meaning that the, the tenant is not paying for almost anything. They just pay one flat rent. The landlord is, you know, essentially having to pay electric, water, taxes, insurance. And I've seen leases like this where it's just, it's kind of flabbergasting. And, you know, you, you, you see this, this building and maybe there's only a year or two left on the lease for this particular retail tenant and they're on a gross lease and they're already under market. That's a phenomenal opportunity for you to be able to buy the, the asset at a lower price because of, of the foibles of a, of the owner and then hold it for a year. And then once that tenant turns over, you, you fix up the space a little bit and move in a new tenant at a market rate. And you can really push the NOI in those instances, um, especially depending on which, which, what market you're in and everything else. And so that's one of the best ways to add value to a center. Obviously, you know, out parcels or, or, or areas where you can, you know, capitalize on, you know, drive throughs are huge. Um, especially after COVID, it's been, I mean, everything that's a drive through is a premium. You see a lot of these bank branches starting to close and they're being marketed as, you know, fast casual dining, you know, potential because of the, the, the ability to, for drive through as well. So those are just some value add opportunities. Yeah, that's great. And I would love to unpack a little bit more on triple net and modified gross, I think was the term. But before we do that, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty well known that in the residential space or any sort of unit based space, how you do market comparables and, and determine your unit based rent or price per square footage. What, what exactly goes into, you know, just to focus on income a little bit, what goes into determining if a center is leasing at an appropriate square footage price or not? That's great. That's a great question. So really, you know, that, that's lease comp data is what it's called. So there's different ways you can garner that information. The, mo the easiest way is through, you know, your local commercial listing services. You know, commercial agents have access to lease information, you know, for the most part. There's some people that don't like to share that information for obvious reasons. But, you know, typically you can get an idea of what things are going for in an area just by talking to someone who does it every day. Like I could tell you if you're wanting a lease restaurant space in this particular corridor in Louisville, I could tell you, well, this is the range that you're looking at as far as market rates concerned, because I may have done a deal or two in that area over the last six months. So at least you get an idea of what that looks like. You know, as far as, you know, triple net expenses are concerned, it's obviously a function of the assessed value of the property. 
So doing doing research on the assessment of what the property is, you know, typically here locally in Louisville, we have a 1.1% property tax assessment. So you take your assessed value times 1.1%, and that typically is what you would pay as far as your yearly rates concerned. And then you assign that value on a pro rata basis based on the tenants that are in the center. Insurance is going to vary depending on what different uses are in the center. You know, restaurants may be a higher premium versus a, you know, a a shoe store. You know, again, the, the insurance agents are typically going to be able to provide you with a higher, a better understanding of what your insurance rates are concerned. And then, you know, with multi-tenant centers, there's something called common area maintenance, which is a, you know, a, a charge that's typically applied to, you know, maintaining the common areas of a space. So that may include, you know, trash pickup, uh, cleaning the the walkway or, you know, the parking lot, if it, it getting getting iced, all that stuff. And typically that can be billed back to the tenants on a pro rata basis. So that's one of the good things about a lot of these retails or commercial opportunities is you can bill back a lot of these expenses to the tenants. And it's a very, it's, it's common in the marketplace. It's not usually balked at too much. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, okay. So the next step I'd, I'd love to go into, if you could explain a little bit. So it sounds like there's two major types of leases in the commercial space, one being net, net, net or triple net and one being modified gross. So could we go into the similarities and different, I guess mainly the differences of them a little bit to understand how these are structured? Well, modified gross is not super common. It's percentage is more common. It, and, and again, it depends on the, mar- it depends on the market. So a triple net lease is, you know, you, you know, there's three ends. So single net lease is, is property taxes. So the single end. So you're, you're, you're going to assign a pro rata share of taxes to the user. Uh, if you have a double net lease, it's going to be taxes and insurance. So you have a pro rata share assignment of taxes and insurance for the property. When you assign the third, the third N, which would be general maintenance, that means that everything inside the unit, you're kind of responsible for. If there's a light bulb out, I'm not coming to fix it. If your toilet's out, I'm not coming to fix it. It's your responsibility. So those types of things. And, and a lot of times you, you would negotiate like a threshold for, you know, HVAC or something like that. So, you know, if it's below a thousand dollars a year, then, you know, it's the tenant's responsibility. If it's anything above that, sometimes you can pass that along to the landlord. But, you know, essentially you assign increasingly more responsibility to the tenant to maintain their space and, and maintain the, you know, the, the semblance of the center. You know, percentage is more common in, you know, retail and restaurant tenants for tenants. And it's usually with when it's within a center, like a large center. And the reason for that is that the landlord typically invests a significant amount of money into the beautification and to attractiveness of the center to attract more foot traffic to the center. And so sometimes you would essentially negotiate with the, the business tenant and say, look, like if you break th- $3 million in sales for your restaurant, you, you have your base rent. But once you start breaking a million, $3 million, that's probably the reason you're probably breaking that is partly because of the fact that we're attracting a lot of people to this, this location because of our efforts as landlords. And so that's when you would negotiate a percentage lease saying, okay, for each dollar above a $3 million, you pay us 5% of your sales as additional rent. And so that's what a, a percentage lease would look like. And that would be above and beyond a triple net lease. It'd be triple net plus percentage is the idea. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So you would, so it's just as a quick example, just quick and dirty math. So let's say that you pay whatever your, your, your base rent lease is, and then you make $4 million instead of $3 million. You would take the $1 million spread and assign a 5% additional rent to that. So you'd pay an additional $50,000 in over the course of a year into uh, for the for the tenant. Sometimes this is billed on a quarterly basis, but biannual or annual. And you know, you may you may as a tenant say it sucks, but well, they're making a million. You know, you're making a million extra dollars. It's like 
you know, is it really that big of a deal? I don't know. Yeah, you it's kind me. of a you're, you're welcome kind of thing, right? So because what you're we well, did for yeah, you. <laughs> it's like okay, well, exactly, exactly. So that makes sense. Okay, and so the, I think the next place that makes me want to take this is why would I go into retail over a unit based product like multifamily? Well, what I'm hearing here, multifamily in comparison is going to be a little higher overhead and capital intensive, i.e. anything that happens to that property, I as the owner and landlord am doing it, right? My tenants are not typically permitted in most cases to do anything to the building. Uh, even if they wanted to, they wouldn't. And, you know, in, in addition to that, I'm turning over tenants 50% every year, which means I turn over everyone every two years, right? So let's just say everyone turns over every two years. That means I'm probably going to have some sort of overhead to clean the property, maybe renovate the property, market and lease the property. And so it typically requires that I have substantial staff. I, you know, there is no triple net in this situation where no one's paying my taxes, but me, no one's paying my insurance, but me, I just have to net all that out in, or you hope that my rental rate covers all of that. And so there's a lot more, I don't want to say variation, but you're just, you're carrying it all on your shoulders as a landlord. So it sounds like the benefit here is really in a triple net situation uh, and even a percentage situation, your, your three major, your two major categories, taxes and insurance are build back pro rata and your basically everything else on your expense load is also passed through barring major things that are that are outstanding. So if I can draw the line here, tell me where I'm missing here. I probably as a triple net owner, number one, I benefit from long-term cash flow and built-in lease escalations. I probably have some upside on a percentage-based deal. And I really don't have to have much in the way of staff or day-to-day operations with the exception of maybe hiring some third parties to replace some major maintenance issues or keep the common areas up to date. I mean, am I reading this right? Awesome. Yeah, that, that's a great question itself. So I think one of the main differences between uh, retail and multifamily is, you know, multifamily tends to be operationally heavy, as you kind of ref- alluded to earlier. I mean, you know, the turnover is a little higher. Uh, you're going to have to have more staff on site, uh, typically to handle like the 200 plus units that you're, you're dealing with. You know, typically in a retail neighborhood center, 15 to 30,000 square feet, let's say, you know, you may have eight tenants or 10 tenants, you know, so the, the, the turnover is going to be less, you know, the, the downtime when a, when, a, when a tenant leaves is typically longer and the build out to accommodate a new tenant can be a little bit more expensive as well. You know, typically there are tenant improvement allowances, what it's called, where you allocate a certain amount of dollars per square foot to give to the tenant in, 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 in place of them allowing them to build out the space to their specifications. I would say that, that that's, that's probably one of the biggest, uh, you know, differences between you know, the multifamily side and then the, the, the retail side. So as, as someone who, you know, represents a lot of clients that do like the, the retail investment side, the main reason they do that is because it's a lot less intensive on the operational side. Because a lot of the clients that I deal with are already, they own, they're business owners, they own liquor stores, they own convenience stores, they have other operating businesses that are their money generators, and they want to divert those, those investments into commercial property that they can then, you know, build some generational wealth with. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Raphael, I really appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing your expertise with our listener base. This is truly the really the first time we've dug into retail, you know, on the square footage side. So thank you for your expertise there. But before we go, I've got to ask you a couple of questions that we ask everyone on the show. So are you ready for a couple of questions from Team Quattro here? Sure. Yeah, of course. Ready to swing them at me, throw them at me. All right, here we go. So tell me what your superpower is in this business. What's the thing that makes you awesome? 
That's great. That's a great question. I would say the biggest, well, I would say one of my biggest superpowers is my ability to connect and relate to people. I think a big reason why that was the case is because I've, I've lived all over the world. You know, I've moved a lot in my life. I've never lived in one place more than five years. So adaptability is something that I've had to learn. Otherwise, you're that kind of that weird kid in class. Uh, so, you know, I feel like I've, I've kind of exercised that muscle enough to a point now where I feel like I can connect with a, a broad base of people. And I feel like I do have a, a very good knack for teaching. You know, I, I feel like I can break things down. And, you know, as, as engineers, that's kind of what we do is we break very complex things down into component parts. And then we relay that message to someone so they can effectively understand the problem, thus, you know, be able to achieve a, the optimal solution. And so I would say those two are probably my biggest superpowers. Um, and it's served me well so far. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that uh, living around the world has helped you be able to connect with people of all backgrounds and types. So that's fantastic. Well, we've heard a lot of reasons why you're pretty cool guy here and pretty sharp. Tell me, uh, tell me what your biggest failure is. Give me some dirt. What, what's your biggest failure in life or business and what did you learn from it? Yeah, no, I mean, I've had many, but I would say one of my biggest that I, that I was, was a, a changing point in my life was, you know, I studied engineering in college, but back my sophomore year of college, I started a company called Posticity. It was a pasta catering company. And, you know, the inspiration for that is that my grandfather was by far the most phenomenal cook I've ever met. And he's, he's from Italy and he had a farm and, you know, he would pretty much take whatever was available and just can make the most delicious meal you could possibly think of. And so, you know, I took some of his recipes and started this business. And it first started out with me creating or like me and my business partner cooking meals for our, uh, for our fraternity chapter meetings. And we'd bring them in and we'd sell the pasta there. And then it evolved to, you know, servicing different organizations on campus. And we even did some corporate lunches. And then right out of college, I got accepted into an incubator in Phoenix where, you know, they kind of teach you about how to grow and expand a business. Uh, I went through that process. I had built a relationship with uh, a mentor of mine who was a financial advisor, but he also happened to own a restaurant in town. And he gave me the opportunity to manage that restaurant for a little while. Um, and then I went through that process of managing that restaurant and trying to grow my business. And I pretty quickly realized that it was not uh, the all it's crap got to be to be a restaurant owner. And, you know, I kind of found myself in kind of in limbo and I lost a lot of motivation for, for things. And, you know, my, my, my mentor at the time, he demoted me from, from the manager because he could tell that I just was not being uh, what I needed to be in order to make sure that the, the, the operations ran smoothly. Uh, my business was faltering and, you know, I, I kind of went into a, a depression funk. And then ultimately after, you know, months of this, you know, just sulking and not, performing at a great level, he let me go from the, the restaurant and it kind of triggered me into like, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do now? You know, I mean, I, I had my engineering degree, but I hadn't applied it for, you know, almost a year at that point. And so, you know, kind of went into like attack mode and, and tried to figure out the best course of action. And, you know, I don't come from a, a software background. I studied industrial engineering and economics in college, but, you know, I'd taken one or two software classes, but I thought, okay, what I wanted to get in the consulting space because I felt like it could utilize my skill set as someone who's just an effective communicator. And I said, okay, let me look at the technical consulting space. And so I found some job roles out there and ultimately found this particular role that I, that I ended up getting. But, you know, I self-taught myself, you know, a little bit about VB.net and SQL and to just bare bones, very bare minimum to kind of showcase that I could learn it. And ultimately I got the opportunity and that was the, the, the trigger that enabled me to go the, the path that I ultimately did. But, you know, that, that period of time in my life was a very difficult period because I was questioning everything about me and myself and, you know, my self-esteem wasn't the greatest at that moment in time. But, you know, again, opportunities present themselves when, you know, you're, you're in your lowest, lowest moments and you either capitalize on the opportunities or you, you, it's either sink or swim. And unluckily I, I decided to swim. So. 
You know, you got to be one of the only people who took that question and turned it into a good thing. So that, that, that was kind of cool. It was kind of a failure, but it also made you awesome. So that's that's pretty cool, man. I appreciate that. All right. So yeah, man. So next question, one of Quattro's four pillars is philanthropy. And we love to have you know, our guests who come on the show talk about their philanthropic ventures and passions, because a lot of times listeners of this show will contribute on their behalf via the show notes and the links that you provide. So, you know, if you'll share with our listener base, what is your philanthropic passion that you've chosen to give into and, and kind of get you going in the morning? That's all. Yeah, I know. It's a big part of my life. I love to give back in a variety of different capacities. Uh, you know, the first thing we started was a, an organization called Engineers for Business, Arizona State University, where I went to university. Uh, my business partner and I did that for, uh, and so we, we, we established that organization. We started a scholarship that was the Future Engineering Business Leader Scholarship, which essentially was awarded each year to en- an engineer who had a, you know, business mindset that was trying to solve a, a complex problem in the world. And so we've been doing that and we've, we've awarded that scholarship five times, uh, since we started in that back in 2014. I've, I've been involved in the uh, junior achievement for several years. I'm vice chair of the Young Professionals Board here locally. You know that that they focus on uh, financial literacy and work readiness for for kids. It's an awesome experience. If you ever get a chance to teach a class, it's really worth it. And then I'm also involved on the board for Home of the Innocents here, which is a, a local organization that services youth with disabilities. So that's kind of the, the the efforts that I take on my front on the board side. I also serve on the board for my uh, fraternity locally, which I was a Sigma Phi Epsilon in, in Arizona State University. So I serve on the, the University of Louisville board on the alumni board as the VP of programming. So I try to get back as much as I can because I know that I've, I've been given a lot in this life and I hope to try to apply you know my talents and gifts to help others. So yeah, that, that's a very well-rounded answer. And and folks, that just scrolled right down, as always, in the show notes. There'll be links to everything we just talked about. And speaking of links, you know, last question here. You have you know written a couple of books. You have a podcast. Tell us about those and where we can find them. I, I just know after listening to this, some of our listeners are going to be hungry for more about retail investing. So tell me what you got. Oh, sure. So um, you know, I've written six books at this point, uh, four of which were young uh, personal and professional development topics for young professionals. It was called the Millennial Playbook Series. And then most recently, I've started a commercial real estate book series. Uh, the last book I wrote was Before You Sign That Lease, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Leasing Commercial Space, which is a comprehensive guide for business owners interested in, in leasing commercial property. The most recent book, which I just actually released last week, was Before You Buy That Building, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Buying Commercial Real Estate. And it's a comprehensive guide for individuals who are looking to buy commercial real estate. And it's going to be a a series. So the next book's going to be called Before You Sell That Building. I have a development company with one of my buddies who are getting started. So once we get a few projects under belt, it'll be before you develop that building. And then at some point when we start raising capital, it'll be before you invest in that building. It's screening, uh, you know, passive investor's guide to screening operators, essentially. So it's going to be a long-term series. And the podcast that I run is called the Commercial Real Estate Academy Podcast. It's essentially a, a podcast to help simplify the commercial real estate industry for the masses. And we started that back in a year, a year and a half ago. And we've had, geez, almost 100 episodes now, like 90 something episodes. Dude, if you're not careful, you're going to be either the next Rich Dad Empire or the next, you know, so-and-so for dummies. That's pretty cool. Before you do this, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. Before you do anything commercial real estate, go go check out this book. There's going to be Audible books too. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big Audible guy. I'm going to be reading it. It, it makes It makes a big difference. Yeah, fantastic. Well, as, as we mentioned there, scroll down. That's in the show notes, folks. And last question, little secret one. If we wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super active on LinkedIn. So that's probably one of the best ways to do so. You know, obviously I have a website. You can reach out to me. I have my contact information on there. It's, uh, you know, www.rafaelcoyasso.com. 
Collazo is C-O-L-L-A-Z-O. It's, you know, the double L in Spanish is ya. So I've always had to, you know, clarify that, but that's kind of the best way to do it. Fantastic. All right, everyone. Well, this has been an amazing episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. So Rafael, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate the nuggets you've dropped today and all the value you've created for our listeners. I appreciate the opportunity, man. I'm really honored to be on the podcast and I love what you guys are doing. So keep up the great work. All right. Fantastic. Everyone, this has been another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. Until next time, over and out. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.